independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Morales called it the lithium coup. He said what they sought to do was take over our supply of lithium and then privatize it for export to companies like Tesla, which we're setting up next door in Brazil, which is run by a right-wing nationalist president, Jair Bolsonaro. And Elon Musk had actually gone on Twitter while this coup regime was holding power, repressing the left-wing indigenous social movements. And he said, we'll coup whoever we want Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to holistic healing, eco-regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. This is a community-backed show. That's what allows us to be unfiltered and to go into every territory that we possibly can go into. So if you find our work valuable, you can support us at patreon.com slash green dreamer. We do need to reach our next Patreon goal as soon as possible to be able to continue on with the next season. And if every person listening to this who has just $2 to spare chipped in, I'm sure we would collectively get there in no time. So thank you so much for your support. It means a lot. Again, you can support us through joining our Patreon if you can, or otherwise sharing the show and leaving us a five-star review in the podcast app. That also really helps. Today's conversation is essential listening, I think, really worth setting aside dedicated time for. Our guest, Max Blumenthal, is the editor-in-chief of The Gray Zone, an award-winning journalist and the author of several books, including best-selling Republican Gamora, Goliath, The 51-Day War, and The Management of Savagery. He's produced print articles for various publications, many video reports, and several documentaries, including Killing Gaza. Blumenthal founded The Gray Zone in 2015 to really shine a journalistic light on America's state of perpetual war and its dangerous domestic repercussions. So stay tuned as we're going to talk about why we need to question our dominant understanding of credibility that's rooted in institutional biases. We're also going to talk about Blumenthal's 9,000-word in investigative article that unveils the green billionaires tied to the activist network that tried to take down a documentary highlighting the dark sides of quote-unquote green energy. So just in general, a lot of critical and bold discussion points in this conversation that are really powerful and that reveal the consequences of going against power. So Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. The Gray Zone's birth was really spurred by everything that I find wrong with Western media, including progressive media. But when I decided to try to do something new in media where I was actually editing and bringing in other writers and not just doing the writing myself, it was 2015 and I could see that the U.S., and the West in general was entering a kind of new era of nationalism and the wars that had been waged uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union by the U.S., these unilateral wars, the effects of these wars were beginning to come home. And I felt that someone like Trump was going to take the helm and enter the White House or a Trumpist movement was going to play a dominant role or an influential role in shaping American politics. And so I started the gray zone initially to talk about the repercussions of American foreign policy wars like the assault on Iraq and the regime change wars that were being waged in the Middle East in the name of promoting democracy, but also the rise of Islamophobia at home, which was sort of the background noise of these wars or, or 
or an echo of these wars coming back. And the Gray Zone started at Alternet, which was one of the pioneering online progressive publications. It was one of the first. And I was one of the first of my generation to really make a name exclusively in online progressive media. I have very few articles in print. I started writing in 2002. Um, and my first article was in salon.com, but I immediately started writing for Alternet. So I had this longstanding relationship with Alternet, which was also a leader on environmental coverage, really giving a voice to deep green journalists, people like Jeff Gibbs. And so I had close friends there and we created this gray zone section where I was able to bring in a stable of writers and contribute my own articles, Alternet went belly up just like much of progressive media did and was sold to this democratic party click farm called raw story so i took gray zone into the realm of just the independent world i was just running it myself it was a completely new venture for me and i've been able to bring on a few colleagues anya parampil who also happens to be my wife aaron mate and Ben Norton, and grow the stable of writers and contributors that we have to provide a perspective on the world that I think few other publications in the US are doing, and few publications in the world are doing in English, although we have a little family and ecosystem. And the prevailing viewpoint that we're advancing is anti-imperialism, that we oppose the US imposing its will on countries around the world seeking to topple governments wherever it wants and the way that the US goes about it through not just conventional wars like the Iraq war which is a really seminal moment for me in shaping my political understanding but through hybrid warfare that means using anti-corruption campaigns to for example remove leaders like Lula da Silva in Brazil or sanctions where countries are prevented from having an economy because their exports are being blocked or companies are punished for trading with them as we see with Venezuela or Iran or Syria where now doctors are having to smuggle in medical devices and basic medicine and the US is occupying its oil fields to prevent it from getting assets. I think this is the biggest human rights crime in the world is sanctions that are applied on countries simply because they have another system or independent leadership that doesn't fall within the realm of US hegemony. And when you think about sanctions, you rarely see it considered it that way. It's kind of talked about as leverage or it's not talked about at all in US media. And the effects on everyday people who we've been able to meet through our trips to countries where the US is targeting from regime change have illustrated just how much pain it's causing on an everyday level for people. So that's broadly what our mission is. And our mission is also to, to break the media blockade on these countries that are targeted, on, on social movements that don't get a voice in the US, and on issues where, in the, in the case of my article on Planet of the Humans, where the entire media including elements of progressive media, are piling up on a subject and trying to shut down debate. When I think that it's necessary to open up debate, we're going to weigh in. And consequently, we've built up a lot of enemies, a lot of powerful enemies, but we also have a really strong groundswell of support that we experience in really surprising ways, where, for example, just walking through a square in Tegucigalpa in Honduras with my colleague Ben Norton, we were recognized by young people and they said that they, they, they love the gray zone, they love our podcast in Managua, Nicaragua, the same, same kind of thing happens. And so that's really uh, redeeming and it's what keeps us going in the face of so many of, of the attacks that try to not just marginalize us, but to make us feel like pariahs, like we don't belong in media. Mm. 
I have to say that as we've deepened our discussions here to the point where questioning power and pushing against the dominant narratives have become inevitable as a part of understanding what sustainability will really take, I've increasingly felt like an outcast as well. And it gets more and more lonely, certainly on this journey. But through the dominant in educational institutions, we typically learn the types of media outlets that are more credible or prestigious because they have supposedly rigorous systems of fact-checking in place prior to anything being published. Some of these may include the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, The Atlantic, BBC, Wall Street Journal, and so on. Outlets that a lot of more highly institutionally educated people will rely maybe entirely on as quote-unquote credible sources of news. But if one were to only consume media from these corporatized platforms, what perspectives do you think they would miss out on? And why is our dominant understanding of credibility even worth questioning? Yeah, that's another great question. I mean, not only are these outlets actually being rammed down the throats of anyone who participates in an elite academic institution in the U.S. or is sort of a member of the managerial class that dominates urban cores like New York City, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles. And not only is there sort of this peer pressure to adopt the viewpoint, the the prevailing kind of liberal internationalist viewpoint that dominates these publications, but you also have to see them as absolutely objective and not ideological. You have to you you have to view them as simply a measure of journalistic excellence and not an instrument of reinforcing the status quo or a device for manufacturing consent. And that therefore renders empire and the ideology behind it invisible, which is extremely dangerous. And that's why I think these publications, in many ways, they're constantly promoting regime change wars. They're constantly justifying sanctions. They're constantly pumping up dissident figures in countries that are targeted for regime change who are sponsored by the U.S. government, who are trained by U.S. intelligence, while justifying the imprisonment and silencing of figures like Julian Assange who are being persecuted by those same governments that, for example, train and cultivate figures like Juan Guaido. And so I consider them actually more insidious and more dangerous than a publication like Fox News, where you just know what the agenda is going in, and you know that you are going to be propagandized to take on a more right-wing, nationalistic, jingoistic point of view. That's why it's increasingly hard for me to actually even socialize with people who don't attempt to question their own prevailing, the prevailing viewpoint within, you know, coastal liberal quarters where they, they actually don't turn to alternative media. They don't even consider that a country like Venezuela is poor and people are leaving because it is under sanctions. They don't even know that that's taking place. They don't know that the West is preventing it or the U.S. is preventing it from exporting oil. They think Julian Assange is a, a, a bizarre figure who's committed some horrible crime by collaborating with Russian hackers. In fact, they believe these conspiracy theories about Donald Trump colluding with Russia and believe that Russia hacked somehow hacked the U.S. election in 2016 and delivered it to Donald Trump. Yet they think that people who believe that Donald Trump is rescuing children from an elite pedophile ring who are QAnon followers are absolutely insane and should be banned from the internet. So on the one hand, you have establishment conspiracy theories, which are propagated by the New York Times, BBC, in cooperation and collaboration with the intelligence services at the MI6, CIA, and their various cutouts. And they are accepted. And to question them makes you a pariah, makes you marginalized. But then you have conspiracy theorists who follow QAnon, who rioted at the US Capitol on January 6th, who are now being targeted 
with their absolute disappearance from the internet. So it really depends on which conspiracy theory you believe here. Do you believe the establishment conspiracy theory that reinforces the status quo? For example, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's conspiracy theory that Iran is the leading base in the world of Al-Qaeda, an organization which Iran has actually fought and sought to destroy. If you believe those conspiracy theories, you're part of you, you can you can be part of an elite mainstream academic institution, for example. You can teach there. And if you don't believe them, you'll be marginalized and you'll be lumped in with these sad characters who have somehow been drawn into the QAnon conspiracy. And then ultimately, you will be targeted with demonetization on YouTube, coordinated smear campaigns on Wikipedia as we are. You'll be shadow banned on Twitter. Your, the algorithm will wipe you out on Facebook and limit the likes of your media organization. And that's sort of what we've experienced for challenging elite conspiracy theories and for playing the role, I think, of a fact-checking organization in holding mainstream media accountable. I can point to so many of the lies that we've exposed in these mainstream organizations, but we're constantly painted as the conspiracy theorists. And I should also point out there's a cartel of fact-checking organizations that are sponsored by billionaires like Piero Midiar, who is very close to the U.S. government, particularly the Democratic wing of it, Pointer, uh, Snopes, these kind of fact-checking organizations. They often play a role of reinforcing the status quo by getting it wrong and simply declaring that facts that 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 facts are in dispute when the fact actually interferes with for example the US foreign policy consensus i can give one example which is and this is one of the most controversial topics that we've ever encountered at the gray zone the so-called syrian white helmets which is an organization which was sold to the american public as rescuers heroic rescuers who were in fact an arm of the armed Syrian opposition whose job was to provide public relations services to the extremist militias, which were aligned with Al-Qaeda in Syria, who were being armed and trained by the U.S. through a multi-billion dollar CIA program called Operation Timber Sycamore to destabilize Syria, which is one of the last independent Arab states, to wreak havoc on it, to capture territory, they imposed extreme theocratic rule. And the White Helmets were right there providing PR services with their cameras, giving interviews. And of course, no Western journalist could get in there. It's impossible for Western journalists to get in because they would be kidnapped or in the case of James Foley, beheaded. And so this organization, which was being funded and trained by the West and being heroized, lionized as selfless rescuers in all media organizations, if you actually said that this organization was aligned with criminal extremists and that they were actually photographed and videotaped, working with them, carrying their weapons, even participating in executions of people who had violated theocratic rule on video, which has been, we've documented, it's been widely documented, then you would be called a conspiracy theorist. So Snopes produced an article questioning whether whether the White Helmets, I mean, this is an organization funded to the tune of something like $60 million by the U.S. Agency for International Development. British Foreign Office was funding it to the same degree. The Snopes produced an article about, about the issue of the White Helmets working with jihadist extremist organizations like Al-Qaeda's affiliate in Syria, and they declared that it was unproven, mm -hmm. simply unproven. It's unproven because... Western media had refused to take this scandal on because they were so invested in seeing regime change take place in Syria. So they ran basically a cover-up of what I consider to be one of the greatest scandals of the 21st century. Our tax dollars were going into an organization that was essentially the civil, the civil arm or the public relations arm of an affiliate of the organization responsible for 9-11. And it's been documented. It's not a it, it, it's it's not a conspiracy theory. It's a conspiracy fact 
And I should mention that the BBC World Service, which is funded by the British Foreign Office, recently aired a 10-part series called May Day about the White Helmets, which aimed to basically continue this cover-up of all of the scandals they've been involved in. It was initiated after the founder of the White Helmets, who was not a Syrian man, but was a British man who was a military intelligence officer named James Lemersurier, committed suicide after Dutch media revealed that he was engaged in a massive campaign of fraud, where he was basically pilfering the money that had come through all these European governments into his organization. And this, because our work has been so damning of the White Helmets, an, edi- an, an episode was dedicated partly to me, and it sought to paint me and the gray zone as a vehicle of Russian influence and claimed that the Russian government had actually recruited me, that Vladimir Putin had actually recruited <laughs> me in Moscow in 2015, and that the gray zone was created as a result of this, and that I proceeded to convert Roger Waters, the Pink Floyd co-founder, who has criticized the White Helmets and the proxy war on Syria in public, that I went and basically brainwashed him. And there is no evidence to support any of this, but this was broadcast last week on the BBC World Service. And so I had you know all these emails from people around the world. Did you hear you were just like attacked on BBC? Like they couldn't even make sense of it, but they were like, they basically called you a Russian spy. But there was no evidence for this claim. There never will be because it's completely false. The the gray zone has never had anything to do with Russia. But because we put these views out there, you can be smeared in conspiratorial, demented fashion on a world broadcasting service that we're all told to respect. And there's nothing you can say or do about it. Well, there's so much to unpack here. And because I think this may be the first time that some of our listeners are hearing about Russiagate, because you touched on that, I want to recommend that they check out uh, one of the award-winning journalists on your team, Aaron Mate's work dismantling the false narratives around Russiagate, if they want to learn more about that on their own. And I'll link to maybe an interview uh, in the show notes. And to further this discussion on credibility, there's this scale that people often use to judge a media platform's credibility, and it goes from rating outlets as having a extreme left bias to moderate left bias to moderate right and then far right bias. Though curiously in the center, in the political center, somehow that's considered least biased and the most balanced, even though political centrism is a bias in of itself. So to even have corporate centrism placed in the center and labeled as if it's the least biased and therefore the most credible is worth questioning. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I should mention that if this broadcast does gain a wide listenership, then you will be probably attacked harshly because you're simply not allowed to mention any criticism of the white helmets in public still, despite all we know about it. I went on uh, the Useful Idiots podcast, which is hosted by Rolling Stone, with Matt Taibbi and my friend Katie Halper. And we, you know, it was a long, wide-ranging discussion. And I brought up, I brought up my reporting on the white helmets in the context of the conversation and Rolling Stone promptly received a petition signed by many people who work at think tanks funded by the Gulf monarchies in Washington, neoconservatives, various foreign policy establishment figures, academics who favor regime change in Syria, 
the basically the echo chamber that had driven the proxy war all along, demanding that that show be taken off air because they hosted me and allowed me to say what I said, <laughs> demanding that Rolling Stone cancel this show, which was their most popular podcast, very popular podcast. I mean, you look at any of their episodes, they have hundreds of thousands of views. They have a wide range of guests. They have debates. And it, it really was revealing. And the petition came with a dossier that looked like an intelligence dossier of me. Every line was a different smear, and it all pointed to me somehow being recruited by foreign governments to basically wreak havoc and lie, but none of it disproved anything I said. So this happens constantly, but you also mentioned this kind of de facto rating system. There is an organization that has attempted to impose a rating system to soft censor alternative media. And it's called NewsGuard. I don't know if you've heard of this. Mm -mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a corporate group that has a board of former CIA directors and national security state figures like Michael Hayden, Tom Ridge, someone who is going into the Biden administration who described himself as the chief propagandist for the Obama State Department, Richard Stengel. And his obsession is with so censoring social media that he considers too disruptive. And NewsGuard contacted through their CEO, who's this corporate veteran journalist named Stephen Brill, uh, an outlet called Mint Press, which is an anti-imperialist alternative outlet. It's run by my friend Manar Mohawish, who is a Palestinian woman who is just an independent young businesswoman and journalist who started this site on her own while raising three children. She's a really remarkable figure. And she's been under attack since she did it because you're not allowed to 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 do what she did. It's it's almost considered a crime to introduce a Palestinian perspective on the world in an outlet that has a wide readership. And so how how can you stop this? Well, you have to put a rating system on it. So when you Google it or you see a article come up, there'll be a color associated with the the outlet. Tom Ridge, who I mentioned before, Department of Homeland Security Secretary under George W. Bush, he was the one who imposed color codes for the level of threat that America faced every day after 9-11. So you'd wake up and you'd hear, today is a red alert day, or today is an orange threat day to, make, to, to, to dictate how much fear you should feel for the day. And so they contacted Mint Press and told them, you know, we think you're a Russian-affiliated outlet with no evidence at all. And, you know, your reporting is disruptive. It's, it's not credible. And they ultimately gave them a, a red rating. Yeah, a red rating. Wow. <laughs> and uh, the problem is NewsGuard hasn't really broken through enough. And has, it hasn't gotten institutional partnerships with Google or universities. But what they seek to do is actually impose these rating systems on computers at universities so that when students look up articles, the computer system will automatically inform them that it's red, it's not credible, and it's it's leftist, and here's what smears have been published. So that doesn't, it's not really necessary to do that because Wikipedia, which you think of as a people's encyclopedia, or not you personally, but one would think of as the people's encyclopedia that Anyone can go there and edit it, and it works through consensus that if something is, if there's an edit that's unfair or wrong, another group will come in and correct it until a consensus is established. But the reality is that there is a small group of political editors there called the skeptics who are centrists who believe in this false notion of objectivity. Objectivity is conflated with mainstream corporate media like the outlets you mentioned at the outset of this conversation. And they have authorized someone named Philip Cross, who we, well, first of all, the skeptics are, are beloved by Jimmy Wales, who is the CEO of Wikipedia. He's the kind of Silicon Valley bigwig who oversees the whole thing. His wife is the former diary secretary to Iraq war author, Tony Blair, the former British prime minister. He loves hanging out at Davos. He just is, he, he, he loves the elite world and he thinks that's objectivity. That's where the truth lies. And so do the skeptics. So they run the game on Wikipedia. And 
they've authorized a figure named Philip Cross, who may not even be a real person, who conducts over 30 edits a day at an industrial rate, targeting exclusively the pages of anti-imperialists and anti-war voices. So my page has been targeted by him. My page was fairly benign for a while. It just said, you know, he's written for this or that outlet. He has uh, won this or that award. And that's it. And here are a few articles he's written just, you know, to get a sense of, of, of where I'm coming from. I thought that was fine. Philip Cross is now responsible for 40% of the edits on my page. And it basically makes me look like a demonic Holocaust denier or, or a Russian asset. Every smear possible that he could get on there was placed on my page. It was absolutely vandalized. And any accomplishment, any award I won, any mainstream publication I'd written for, including the New York Times, was removed. And there was nothing anyone could do about it because my page was locked to prevent the general public from coming in and editing it or fighting back. Subsequently, the gray zone through Philip Cross, the skeptics, and then other neoconservative cartels on Wikipedia was listed as a deprecated source in violation of Wikipedia rules. Wow. Nothing was ever pointed out. They never pointed out that we published anything false because we never have and we issue corrections when factual errors are pointed out. But we, they, nothing was ever pointed out false. And yet we were listed as a deprecated source, which means that you can't use any of our articles as a citation, which would be very dangerous because then you could start editing articles about specific events that we've covered and providing an alternative perspective. So we're effectively banned from the people's encyclopedia. And what happens when you Google my name? What happens when you Google the gray zone? What happens when you Google, I don't know, Mint Press or any of these alternative sites? Google has a partnership with Wikipedia. So to the right of the screen, my Wikipedia dossier comes up. And everything that Philip Cross, this mysterious figure in the UK who could actually be a series of, I don't know, state propagandists working in an office, that is what you will see if you want to learn about who I am. And that is what is considered absolutely objective. Mm -hmm. So we have to consider the ideology behind the concept of objectivity and why we even have to consider ourselves alternative media. Right. And I have to say that I've noticed in the recent months on Instagram, there are several accounts that regularly post about imperialism around the globe or people's armed movements against their oppressive governments. And several of those accounts have this label under their account name, Russia state controlled media to seemingly discredit them. And right. There, there's a chance that those accounts might have ties to the Russian government or get some of their funding from related sources. But then the question is also, how come corporate media in other countries that have very clear ties to the state don't have the same labels? And then to move on, because I really want to get to this, the primary reason I was really keen on having you on the show is because you wrote an explosive 9,000-word investigative article on the green billionaires behind the professional activists network that led to the suppression <laughs> yeah. of Planet of the Humans documentary, a film that we had discussed previously on the show, along with just the provocative topic of how clean energy and tech is not really clean nor green, which should make us seriously reconsider what a truly sustainable future would look like. But this article weaves in the topics we had just discussed so far, including power and censorship. So I'm going to link to your article in the show notes. There's a lot there for our readers to dive into. You, but I would love for you to give uh, our listeners a brief overview of what you discovered regarding why and by whom a documentary revealing the dark sides of solar and wind energy was actively being suppressed. Right. Well, this article, many people might have seen it as sort of a divergence from what I've, I've been writing about for the past few years, but it fit right in and the topic fascinated me because energy is so central to empire and to the future of capitalism. And so during a pandemic in which the city that I live in was essentially shut down or rendered partially inoperative, I had a lot of time to 
do research and to delve into something that I always was interested in, but had never been able to develop any expertise or done or conduct thorough research on. And so when I saw the censorship campaign against Planet of the Humans, and I saw that many people in my circles were being turned off to even watching this documentary, which I watched and found revelatory because it articulated in an hour and a half in maybe slightly flawed fashion, the deep green perspective, which is frozen out of mainstream environmental politics, mainstream green politics, and I don't even think is represented in the Green New Deal, that I thought it was important to not only defend this film, but expose the forces behind those who are censoring it. And what I found was that the censorship campaign was essentially an industry astroturf campaign to shut down a challenge to the renewables industry, which represents the future of global capitalism. It represents the fourth industrial revolution, not just AI and cloud technology, but also renewable technology, which is a $40 trillion profit center that figures like Al Gore have started these investment firms to plow money into. Basically, the film Planet of the Humans builds on the research of Ozzy Zayner, who is an academic and a deep green environmentalist who had wrote a book called Green Illusions, which exposed renewable energies, renewable energy as kind of a sham, something that doesn't work very well and which is deeply damaging to the environment. But when we think of environmentalism today, we think of Greta Thunberg and figures who only talk about climate justice. They only talk about emissions. They want to end fossil fuels and move towards a future where renewable energy powers the economy at the same rate that it's currently functioning and allows for capitalism to continue. And I think Planet of the, of the Humans, while it didn't explicitly present an anti-capitalist narrative, presents a deep challenge or a serious challenge to the capitalist model because it, it, the only conclusion you can draw from it is that we can't just keep producing all of these solar panels, which are impossible to dispose of, which are inefficient, which require massive amounts of mining, as do the wind turbines and the electric batteries that are going to power Elon Musk's Teslas. We can't just keep mining and mining our way to a renewable future and building massive solar farms that tear up the desert like the Ivanpah solar thermal farm, which has been a complete and absolute failure while killing 6,000 desert birds a year and just ripping up a large part of the Mojave Desert. We can't keep doing that. We can't keep thinking that we can grow forever economically. We have to move towards degrowth and actually consider how we're going to stop the consumption that's destroying the planet. And that is just, just too controversial to even consider that. It undercuts the Green New Deal and the Biden energy plan. It raises questions about what the Sunshine Movement is trying to do when they've suddenly gone from some supposedly grassroots group to being housed at a fl one floor below the Sierra Club at a fancy office in downtown D.C. How did they get there? Who's funding the Sierra Club? Well, it turns out it's Mike Bloomberg. Why does Mike Bloomberg, what does he care about the environment? Oh, well, he's part of this investor class that wants to get in on the renewable revolution, the fourth industrial revolution. So I was able to bring out these issues in this article and to bring it home to the topics that are a real wheelhouse at the gray zone, anti-imperialism, and show how lithium is such an important element or mineral in the production of electric batteries. And electric battery production will grow at a rate of, at a factor of 40 according to the World Economic Forum, by 2030, as we move towards you know, electric cars and so on. Lithium, Bolivia is one of the world's leading, or it sits on one of the world's largest reserves of lithium. Bolivia had a coup that which we covered in 2019, a right-wing coup backed by the US to remove the first indigenous president in Latin America, in a majority indigenous country, Evo Morales. It was just an absolutely bloody event that brought in a year of harsh repression 
And Morales called it the lithium coup. He said what they sought to do was take over our supply of lithium and then privatize it for export to companies like Tesla, which we're setting up next door in Brazil, which is run by a right-wing nationalist president, Jair Bolsonaro. And Elon Musk had actually gone on Twitter while this coup regime was holding power, repressing the left-wing indigenous social movements. And he said, we'll coup whoever we want when someone brought up the lithium coup in Bolivia. He actually took responsibility for it. I don't think he's uniquely responsible for it, but he personally decided to take responsibility for it. He proved Evo Morales' point. And what Morales and the majority of Bolivians have sought to do is nationalize lithium to use it at least for the benefit of the poor of that country to pay for social programs. But you can see how it destabilized the rush for the fourth industrial revolution. Renewable energy has destabilized a country, if not an entire region of South America. And that's only going to increase. The Congo is another place that's been destabilized in the rush for minerals. The Congo has been the site of the worst genocide since the Holocaust that took place in World War II, during World War II. And it's largely been driven by minerals and illegal mining. So these factors have to be considered when we think that renewable energy is a panacea for our energy needs and that we can just move towards it and move away from fossil fuels and that everything will be fine. And just finally, I, I was able to interview some of the critics of Planet of the Humans, like Josh Fox and a, an, a civil engineer who Josh Fox is allied with who helps produce studies that prove that it's possible to replace all fossil fuels by 2050 with renewable energy. And it didn't work out very well for them when I was able to kind of flesh out their ideas and present them with criticism. Um, and I think it was very revealing to get them quoted on the record about their really incendiary commentary about Planet of the Humans and Michael Moore, who is its producer, so that was another dimension of the article that I think made it so, um, I, mean, I don't want to say explosive, but definitely really, eye-opening, I think, uh, yeah, and groundbreaking. Ground, yeah. So I will affirm that. And again, I'll have this piece linked in our show notes because I really think it's worth spending some time to go over for people to understand that the narratives coming out of this green space are very often skewed with institutional biases. And what this reveals is that the green billionaires have a stake in silencing opposing voices and keeping the current endless economic growth system going. Because if we simply made a substitution and went from relying on fossil fuels to solar and wind to power the same hunger for endless growth, it'll be their turn to profiteer off of the world relying on them. But... The reality is that if we really cared about achieving sustainability, we have to let go of holding on to systems that have failed us and our earth and to address the deeper foundations that our current dominant society was built on. If the rain don't come, stay with it. If the sun don't shine, pray for it. This life was meant for growing. Give it love and watch it grow. Learn to be proud of the seed you sow. Take the time to listen to the trees. Oh, give it love and watch it grow. Learn to be proud of the seed you sow. Take the time to listen to the trees. These are the lessons the garden taught me. These are the lessons. Garden me. So now in the name of truth-seeking um, in independent media, in the name of peace, justice, and sustainability, we are 
inevitably talking about the need to decentralize power across all fields. And that necessarily means taking power and wealth away from those who've taken the most advantage currently of this dehumanizing and exploitive system. This to me means that ethical purity for individuals and organizations that exist in these systems is nearly impossible because it's just a matter of how far away from the source of exploitation we are. But the system is set up now in a way that makes many whose labor is not properly valued at the mercy of people who have extracted the most and now have the most resources. So whether it's for nonprofits or media outlets wanting to remain independently committed to their own missions without being compromised, how do we try to distance ourselves from the exploiters and oppressors and those in power when so many are directly or indirectly reliant on funding from them because most of our work is undervalued by the system? That's that's a great question. I I only have a short time to answer it, but I would say that there's an element of hypocrisy that's inherent in any attempt to challenge the system within the capitalist structure. And we can't just force purity on everyone. So, I mean, you mentioned before um, the labeling of certain outlets as Russian state affiliated media, which has been imposed on social media platforms by the national security state in the US to try to marginalize counter hegemonic media. A lot of young people I know who want to get jobs in media, but want to stay true to their views. They're anti-war, they support you know, anti-fascist or Black Lives Matter uh, protests in a much more radical way than is permitted in mainstream media. They, in the past, had flocked to places like RT America because it gave them the freedom to do it, but it was a Russian state-run outlet, which is now registered as a foreign agent in Washington. And so it's now sort of like a black mark if you've worked there. But in 2015, 2014, that was one of the rare places with an international platform where you could work and learn broadcast media skills and express those kinds of viewpoints. Or even you know, Bernie Sanders supporters found a voice there during the 2016 campaign or supporters of third parties. Now it's, you know, you're, you're, you're completely marginalized and you're a pariah and you can't work anywhere else if you have that on your resume. So then what do you do? Well, you can't work in corporate media without sublimating your views and, or, or, or self-censoring completely. But we've found at the gray zone, you know, we don't take state money. We don't, we don't have like some secret billionaire behind the curtain that, you know, there are many people either who are of means or who are of, who are of small donors who just, who share our views. And it hasn't always been easy, but the, pa- the, the, the platform platforms like Patreon or Substack are really becoming a popular way for supporting independent media and, I think it presents a real threat to traditional media, which has, you know, any office in New York or Washington, any media office has like 20 people who are just editors who produce nothing and just sit there and review articles. And then you have all these writers who produce these zombie like pieces on the outrage or, you know, clickbait issue of the day without really caring. Uh, Those people are threatened by Substack and Patreon. They're threatened by programs like yours that basically exist completely independently of any institution. And that's one of the things that I think is driving social media censorship going forward. Why I think podcasts will be targeted in the future. Patreon will be targeted as well as Substack because it allows writers to make a living for themselves without relying on powerful institutions. Of course, these are Silicon Valley-based platforms that take a cut, and so there is an element of hypocrisy there. But I do see continuing freedom online. I think what we need to fight for ultimately is an internet, not just not just you know a media, but an internet that is free of hegemonic government control. The president of Mexico, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador actually gave uh, delivered a speech two weeks ago where he said just that, that it's increasingly dangerous that the United States can exert its control over the internet 
in the way that it has controlled the world financial system because that means it can throttle any outlet or even world leader that presents a threat to its agenda. And that's where decentralization comes in. Decentralized finance is also important in that respect too because it allows for funding and supporting alternative media through a currency like Bitcoin, which exists outside of the increasingly imperialist SWIFT financial system, the fiat currency system. But there needs to be a decentralized internet as well. And, uh, you know, I could go on and on about it, but I think that there will always be people who are innovating and, and finding ways of communicating with one another in a way that can't be controlled by these hegemonic forces that have already done so much damage to the planet and to other humans. Thank you so much. We are wrapping up here. I know you have to run, but it's been an honor and really wonderful to have you. And I really want to encourage our listeners to subscribe to and check out The Gray Zone again at thegrayzone.com. And yeah, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? (laughs) As green dreamers, well, obviously, I mean, keep dreaming. Don't be gaslighted. Don't be co-opted. Don't become opportunists create the opportunities because at the end of the day, what, what I want to do is to just be right. I believe I'm right and I'm holding fast to a version of reality that I believe in. And no one is going to take that away from me, even if they're taking opportunities away from me. And you have to do that too, because, because I mean, from this investigation that I conducted on Planet of the Humans, from talking to people on all sides of the environmental spectrum, I've concluded that it's really the deep green perspective that's the only hope for this planet's survival. Green Dreamer, we've come full circle here. We are gearing up now to begin working on our next season of the show, as this current one will end with episode 300, which is a huge milestone, and we're so proud and grateful to have had you along on this ride. That said, we really need to meet our Patreon goal, our next Patreon goal, to be able to continue this show. So if you can afford to spare some change starting at just $2, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash greendreamer, or make a one-time contribution at greendreamer.com PayPal. Remaining mostly supported directly by listeners like you is how we're able to cover such a wide range of topics and never feel the need to self-censor when we talk about corporate powers because we're not interested in working with them or building relationships with corporations. We are actually interested in critiquing them and being able to be as unfiltered, unapologetic, and truthful as we can be in service of providing diverse perspectives for you. So I do really want to thank all of our past and current supporters for helping make this show up to this point possible. And again, if you can, patreon.com slash green dreamer. If you're struggling financially, I know it's a difficult time for so many people. Please do not worry at all. Please take care of yourself and your loved ones first. And you can also support us a lot by sharing this episode that you're listening to with your friends and leaving us a five-star review in the podcast app. Anyhow, today's intermission song featured was A Garden Taught Me by Leah Keen. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production intern is Spencer Carter. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I will catch you in the next episode.